0: Just a couple of uh, quick things. Welcome to those who are joining us, maybe for the first time. Glad you're here. And uh, certainly uh, wanted to extend that uh, a welcome to you. You can uh, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and then we're going to flip to the book of Revelation as well. So you might want to put your finger there too. Genesis chapter 1. We're just going to look at three verses there, and then a couple of verses in Revelation. All right, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, these are the words of God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And now from Revelation chapter 7. verses 9 through 10. These are also the words of God. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we are absolutely thankful this evening that you have made us in your image, and in Christ you have restored this image by forgiving us our sins and granting us your Holy Spirit. We ask and pray that the ministry of reconciliation that you have given us would be made real and tangible in our families, in our nation in our churches, that that we would confess our sins, acknowledge our covenantal guiltiness, and move towards faith in you. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, when I began writing this message, I paused around lunchtime, only to return to my work that afternoon, and find myself deleting everything that I had already worked so hard to write. Uh, I don't normally do that type of thing. Uh, once a sermon is written, I'll comb it over once or twice, and that's usually it. I'm, I'm usually done at that point, but for whatever reason, this time I, I felt like I needed to make a change. And I think the reason this happened is because if you think about it, the task before us is quite daunting. It's a daunting thing. Sure, there is a lot that could be said and no doubt when I'm finished I will probably regret that I didn't say something else when I could have said something here or there, but that's usually the case of preaching anyway. But that's not the type of daunting that I am talking about tonight. The reason it's daunting, this topic of racism being the the prejudice of fallen man, the reason it is daunting is because when we consider American history I don't think that most white people realize the depths of damage that has been done to our black brothers and sisters. I don't think so. I, for one, will be the first in line to admit that up really until a few years ago, I had no real idea of the depths of this issue of racism in our country. I was taught in public school that Lincoln freed the slaves. The South South was simply full of racists, and we should thank God the North came to save the day. That's what I was taught. That's the history I was taught. Then I had to go back and actually read Lincoln (laughs) and read some of these historical accounts. Now, I was also taught that slavery really wasn't that big of a deal. Really, it wasn't that big of a deal. Sure, in hindsight, we probably shouldn't have done that. But it wasn't as awful as people make it sound. These are the types of things that I learned. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only one who was taught to think like this. Growing up in southern Michigan, which was predominantly white, I I had no real hatred towards those who were different than me. Um, I never really spent a lot of time dwelling on that fact. Um, It wasn't that I perpetuated the whole colorblindness nonsense that you hear people sort of righteously say, well, I'm colorblind. Well, that's great. Jesus isn't. So So now you're at odds with Jesus. But I guess, I guess the Lord, by his grace, sort of just kept me from racial prejudice in that way. In 2004, I moved to inner city Philadelphia. And basically, I went there to complete my education, moved in with two other friends of mine. From, well, One was from Michigan, one was from Pennsylvania. And I also moved in with um, who is now still a friend. His name is Kai Leo, an African-American man from New Jersey. So it was also there that I met my bride, Mary. I had a job in North Philly working at a window company with lots of different people, a few African-Americans, a few blacks, a few Puerto Ricans, quite a few Puerto Ricans. I learned some Spanish. I already know some Spanish, but I learned some real Spanish then. Um, Our boss was also from South Korea. So it was in this type of environment for me that I learned a lot about culture, something that was very different than my upbringing in southern Michigan. Perhaps the highlight of my experience in seminary was a friendship that I developed with a black pastor from New Jersey who I still keep in touch with today. Um, In fact, I remember one time for us, and this was my seminary experience, I went uh, part of an an assignment I was graded on. I had to visit another church, a a different culture that I was used to. So I went to an all-black church. I was the only white guy there. And everybody's dancing, and I'm sort of just clapping. It's outside my element. Uh, But I loved it. I, I loved the experience, and I still remember it to this day. So this, this class was basically just immersing ourselves in a different culture to sort of really reach out, to, to reach out your hand as brothers and sisters in Christ and, and learn something different. It was absolutely a joy. Now, by God's grace, I learned a lot from those experiences, and I'm only sharing them really for three reasons. One, I know that my story is unique, and only I can tell that. That's my story. Two, not everyone has had that sort of experience, and three, really, the reason for sharing that is to give testimony on how we might fight against the sin of racism in our day. Now, racism is the, is the prejudice of fallen man it 's the hatred and the poor treatment of those who are different than you in context in context in our context, it isn 't simply a disdain for, for someone of a different ethnic background it 's done by those in the majority towards those in the minority racism inherently believes in ethnic superiority that's what it is by its very definition the racist believes himself to be genetically superior to those in the minority now this type of thinking is is pagan in origin it's rooted in materialistic determinism which we'll come back to and it goes against scripture it goes against the word of god now, in our culture today, predominantly, or particularly, rather, here in America, we have varying degrees of understanding as it pertains to racism. We have um, whites who acknowledge that racism is a thing. Um, they have repented for any racist views that they may have had or of other minorities and other people. And there are, they're genuinely trying, I would say, to move forward. That's one group. We have another group, though. Um, talking specifically about whites and majority, who refuse to acknowledge that racism is a thing. They refuse to to acknowledge it. They refuse to see why they should, quote, cater to minorities, unquote. They refuse to acknowledge that something like white privilege is a thing. When you're in the majority, you have a privilege. You have a responsibility. They reject those types of thinking. And, of course, they don't want anything to do with reconciliation because they don't think there needs to be Reconciliation. After all, that's in the past, right? Now, in large part, many that I know are in the first camp. I don't really know anybody in the latter camp. But there is also another category to consider. Whites who just don't know. They're hostile. They're just sort of stuck. Maybe ambivalent about the whole thing. They know there are problems in our nation. They know there are problems in our communities, but they really aren't quite sure what to do about them. They want to listen. They want to hear people out. They're desperately trying to understand how to live in this new melting pot we find ourselves in, culturally speaking, but they're not sure where to go from there. Now, I'm going to do my best to try to address all three with the hope of ensuring that we are true to our calling we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. That's our task. It's always our task. Ministers of reconciliation. Not just reconciling, uh, giving people the reconciliation in the big sense of being reconciled to God. That's part of it. That's our task, Paul tells us. But also reconciliation in our relationships. To truly bring together those things that were fractured by Genesis chapter 3. Now, in preparation for this message, I read two books that were recommended to me. We talked about them a little bit earlier. The first was by Dr. Eric Mason called Woke Church. And that whole idea is uh, triggering to many people. Um, I think being awake and alert to what's happening around us is a good and biblical concept. Watchmen, if you will, on the wall. The other book was by John Perkins called Dream With Me. Now, both of these are listed in your bulletin. Highly recommend them. And we've already recommended um, our friend, Joel McDermott, uh, Dr. McDermott's book, Slavery in Christian America, which is, it's meaty, but it is very good. It's very good. Um, so make sure you, you, you check those books out. Now. As a Christian, and especially someone who is fine with the label Christian Reconstructionist, I know that without a doubt that systemic racism is something that does exist. It does exist. We have systems in place right now in America that oppress minorities, and these socialistic systems do nothing but perpetuate injustice. And so it does exist. In fact, not only does it, does it exist, I'm convinced that the Bible, through the means of God's law, can actually address the problem. So as redeemed Christians who take Christ seriously, take the gospel seriously, take the kingdom seriously, and take God's law seriously, we very much believe in the pursuit of justice as being integral to what it means to be a Christian. See, God's law at every turn demands justice for the weak, for the oppressed, for the downtrodden. God's law at every turn demands justice for those who can't defend themselves, for those who are truly in the minority, for those like widows and orphans, for those who don't have what the others have. But listen, justice can't be had simply on socio-political concerns or socio-economic considerations. This is why social justice is such a hot topic right now. That's a term that belongs to Christians, by the way. It belongs to Christians. So we don't just say, well, no, that's a dirty word that Marxists use. Well, they may mean it in that fashion, but the dictionary is ours. Right? Because God gives meaning. God gives words that mean things. So we can have that term. That's fine. But that's why social justice is seen as being a form of socialism. See, justice must always, always be in terms of God's law. For that's the only true and abiding standard. See, for example, asking the government to pay more money into welfare really isn't justice. It's not justice. Now, you might say, well, we're doing something great for people, right? We're helping them. No, (laughs) you're not. Welfare, according to Scripture, belongs to the individual. It belongs to families. As we welcome the stranger, it belongs to the church. Not the state. Now... The Bible addresses racism in several places, and I basically wanted to sort of bookend these. That's why I chose Genesis and Revelation to guide our time. So I'm going to sort of just pull out a few things, and then we'll go from there. Uh, Genesis 1. I want to read that again. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle over the earth, And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. The Bible says he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And again, I will remind you of Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, this is John writing, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I chose those texts on purpose from start to finish, from beginning to end. The Bible has a vision for humanity. The Bible has a vision for humanity, a plan for man who's created in his image, the Imago Dei, right? But not just a plan for man, a plan for man in history. All of mankind is made in the image of God. Now, the, you should know this. This is milk. That's basic Christianity. Right? From the very start, we know men and women were created in the image of God. There's no caveats there. You know, if you're from Michigan, you're more sanctified. Being from Michigan, I know that's not true. There's no categories, there's no caveats, there's no footnotes that say, well, God created man in his image except for some of these other peoples that aren't as made in the image of God. There's there's nothing like that. You see, men and women from all tribes, tongues, and nations are equally created in the image of God, which means that they are both glory bearers and glory reflectors. They're glory bearers and glory reflectors you see man is called to reflect the very nature and characteristics of god though obviously in a limited way none of us are um, too concerned about the fact that we're not omnipotent right and omniscient none of you are going home tonight thinking man tomorrow morning the first thing i'm going to do is try to be more omniscient so we are limited we know that But we're called to reflect God, though in a limited way, and in so doing, we are called to bring the world into subjection to Christ Jesus. See, when God created Adam and Eve, and thus the nations, the calling of the dominion mandate, the the dominion covenant, was given. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, the calling is the same for all of us. Subdue the earth. Be fruitful. We're made in his image. We have a task before us the task of the kingdom of God. You see, dignity, value, and purpose are all imprinted on all men because all bear the image of God. See, now we know that after the fall, after Genesis 3, this image became tainted, the image was fractured. It wasn't um, like it was originally. The image was broken, and and we became legally and ethically disenfranchised from God. We became dead in our sins and our rebellion, for we had transgressed the law of God. We had decided for our own glory instead of for the glory of God, and because of it, we were cursed. However, what needs to be said, I think, here is that this curse is an ethical, judicial curse. It's an ethical, judicial curse. The curse wasn't that some of us had to be white and some of us had to be black and others had to be Latinos. That's not the curse. The curse is the fact that we broke the law of God, now we are guilty of violating the covenant, and that all tribes and tongues and nations are now in need of repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. So the the so-called curse of Ham is just as as stupid as the black Hebrew-Israelite nonsense that you see going on out there. It's just different spectrums of the heresy scale, we'll call it. See, both are trying to solve a problem from the wrong presupposition. See, for the Christian who understands his Bible, who knows Jesus Christ, who's following Jesus Christ, who knows his Bible, we know the problem is sin and the solution is the cross of Christ. We know that. And so, this is why we as Christians will confessionally reject materialistic determinism, right? The thinking that genetics somehow plays a role in history and how genetics works itself out. See, the problem isn't skin color or ethnicity, the problem is sin. The solution is the gospel, which means that in Christ, all of that is resolved. It is resolved. See in Christ the man who used to hate blacks can now be forgiven. In Christ the black man who was oppressed but retaliated unjustly he can be forgiven in Christ. It, it's across the board. It's all the way down. See in Christ we are one. There is no Jew and then Greek and you know slave free. We are all one in in Christ. That's what Paul says in the book of Galatians. See, and this is where Revelation 7 comes in. Revelation 7. There's this great goal of history, right? The great goal of history is the unity of all men in Christ before the throne. That's the goal, right? That's where everything's heading. Everything's heading to this moment where, where we look around and there's an innumerable amount of people from all walks of life, all ethnicities are there. That's the vision. We're all there in Christ. That's the, the goal, right? That's where history is heading, <coughs> So there's no black-white separation like what used to happen in the Jim Crow era. It's not as though we have one section in this great new city of the new heavens and new earth over there, and that's, that's where the Chinese Christians are, and they're hanging out over there. And then we look over here, and there's all the whites. There's the black church in the back. They're louder and singing a little bit. You know, the white Presbyterians are just chilling and not saying a lot. That's not the vision. We're all singing salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the vision. That's the goal. So all of us will be unified together before the Lamb of God. So from Genesis to Revelation, with Christ at the center of it all, this is God's plan for man. This is God's plan for history, which means, listen, we work backwards from that end goal. We work backwards from that end goal. And how do we work backwards from this grand vision of unity between all peoples? Well, this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. I think it's been clear. You understand. Sin's the problem. Gospel's the solution, right? That's the issue here. Made in the image of God. History is going somewhere. What's the vision? What's the, the end game, if you will? That's it. So what do we do? We like to be practical at Cross and Crown, so what are we we supposed to do? Okay, I get the vision, I get the picture, yes, I know the gospel, I see that that's, okay, now what? Well, let's go here. In his book, Woke Church, I want to point out something from Dr. Mason. He spends a whole chapter discussing lament. When's the last time you've read anything from Lamentations. It's a biblical concept, right? Lament, to lament, lamentation. Lamenting should be practiced by all Christians. But this doesn't mean that we just vent and complain. Right? The, the, you've ever had somebody say to you, well, I, I, um, I just need to vent. Well, tell them what Proverb says, that the fool gives vent to his spirit. <laughs> that's not lamentations. That's not what lamenting is this heartfelt process of going before God emotionally undone. When's the last time you've been emotionally undone before Christ? Emotionally gone. A train wreck, we'll call it and emotionally undone before God. This, is, this, this process of lamenting is us agreeing with God in our minds, in our hearts, and in our, in our soul about the circumstances that we are lamenting. And Dr. Mason points out some of the things that we should lament, and I, and I love it. And I want you to hear it, because I think he's absolutely right. He says, the first thing we should lament is the fact that the black church had to be created. We should lament that. Why? Why should we lament that now in 2018? Well, the only reason there's a black church is because the white church wanted nothing to do with them. When they would show up for service, and they would get ousted, sit sit up in the back. We don't need you here. That's how the AME Church was created in Philadelphia. We should lament that. We should lament it. Second thing we should lament, evangelicals' dismissal of the black church. Some Christians want to be colorblind and they want to criticize the very concept of of a black church. Other Christians think that blacks are being racist for being in the black church. Ah, that's their racism. It's reverse racism. They have a black church and they're proud of it. What they don't realize is that in America, and I'm almost brought to tears reading this, Both of these books are emotional, by the way. I'll come back to that topic in a minute. But one of the things he points out is that in America, the black church is really the only institution that they have. Think about it. It's like the only institution. On the heels of slavery, Jim Crow laws, the post-Civil War Reconstruction, See, this is connected to the sin of chattel slavery and what the fruit of that. I think we should lament it. I think we we should. Third thing, tokenism. Mason calls it tokenism. Think of it as hiring a black pastor to meet some sort of quota and then calling it reconciliation. It's belittling, frankly, and it happens a lot. And, and I don't think Mason or Perkins or any of these African-American authors would ever suggest that if you're not a multi-ethnic church, then you're in sin. Because, frankly, there are places where you're just white. Or there's predominantly black or Hispanic. Like, but don't give in to tokenism fourth thing he suggests is that we should lament is racial insensitivity in the academy. In case you didn't know this, um, the two great giants of church history, Augustine, Athanasius, both blacks from North Africa. We should probably, probably think more about that and not forget about it. Fifth thing he says we should lament, evangelical perception of black preachers. People see T.D. Jakes on TV and they think that everyone in the black church is like him as though the black church is made up of people who don't really get the gospel, like us reform folks. We have that down pat. Six, he says... We should lament the fact that justice is not seen as a primary doctrine. When you're white and in the majority, you're oftentimes blind to matters of justice and oppression, hence the recent kerfuffle with John MacArthur and the not, not non-statement, we might call it, on social justice. Seventh, and I want to say one more thing about that. As I, if you read uh, Dr. McDermott's book on this, the complicity of the church in the institution of chattel slavery is damning. It's damning. Seventh thing we should lament, the the, the church didn't create and lead the Black Lives Matter movement. This is lamentable because the church should be on the front lines of defending those who are victims of injustice. But alas, many of us don't care. And And I understand, there are socialistic things that are put out there and we should reject it because we're consistent with Scripture. But we should care. But we should care. Number eight, diminished presence on justice issues. Blacks, he even argues this too, and I think, I mean, as far as I know, he's right, but white churches, for the most part, many of them don't seem to want to talk about these issues. Ninth, we should lament the fact that We have not effectively equipped the church to know how to deal and engage with black ideologies. I'm just curious if you've raised your hand if you've ever talked to a black Hebrew Israelite. Yeah. So that's an interesting conversation. We have to deal with those things. I mean, we already have to deal with Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. I get that. Add this to the list. We need to be equipped. And the last thing he says, 10th, we should lament, is giving up on white Christians who want to grow their racial IQ and contribute to healing, resolution, and restitution. You see for many for many black christians it can be exhausting trying to get the ear and attention of white christians to see what they see to hear what they hear to experience what they experience and dr mason encourages and he doesn't want black christians to just sort of give up on this issue don't don't give up on the process of reconciliation for especially when people are genuinely trying to understand now, I think these laments are absolutely worthy of our consideration, especially as we lean in toward this grand vision of Revelation 7. But one of, the, one of the responses we can't have, listen carefully, we cannot respond with this. So I'm supposed to just feel guilty about slavery that I didn't participate in? This sort of retort is common, and it comes from immature people who aren't willing to be humble and listen. If that's your only response, oh, I'm supposed to just feel guilty. We're not thinking biblically here. Listen to this quote from Dr. Perkins. And and if you read this, it'll humble you. It's a passionate plea. It's very good. He says this, quote, Some people argue that because slavery occurred more than a century ago, asking people to repent again is beating a dead horse. I understand that, but, listen carefully, I also look around and see the legacy that slavery has left among black people, how it has damaged our sense of self-worth so severely, and how other forms of bondage have risen up to take its place. We haven't fully exercised the demon, this demon, from our national soul. Until we do, our best strategy is to repent. When confession comes out of our mouths, sin is forgiven, and room is made for love to come into our hearts. Through love, real change can happen, end quote." That's a man who's passionate." When I read that quote, I, I actually cried. Think about this. Think about what he said. How it has damaged our sense of self-worth so severely. And you think the problem is just feeling guilty about something that happened 200 years ago, or less than that. This is soul-crushing stuff. See, in in Daniel 9, we see how Daniel responded to the sins of his people. What did Daniel do? He owned them. He owned them. He came before the Lord. He confessed those sins as his own. Why? Why would he do such a terrible thing when he's not the one who did it? Because Daniel is a member of the covenant. He's the member of the the covenant. He didn't commit the sins that his friends and kinsmen had committed necessarily, but they became his sins because they were sins against the same God and the same covenant. Now, I agree with Dr. Rushduni's assessment on one of these things. He has a very careful and thoughtful distinction between collective guilt and community responsibility. See, I I can't repent for your sins of adultery. You can't repent for my sins of greed. That can't be done. Those are transactions between you and God. And those transactions are only eradicated and dealt with in Christ. Okay. And genuinely, or generally, I should say, in, in evangelicalism today, we we sort of get that because we have a very individualistic understanding of the gospel. What we don't have is a thoughtful understanding of covenant and corporate responsibility so we can't repent for each other's sins but together before the lord we can acknowledge the guilt of our sin we can bear the responsibility and try to deal with it now as a white person in 2018 sure i can go ahead and simply try and ignore the the history of the sin of the american chattel slavery system right i can just try and i can just bury it in the past the problem is right cuz for me i didn't i wasn't the victim in that And I don't know enough about my ancestry to know if, you know, five generations ago that I had um, a grandfather who owned slaves. I don't know that. I just don't know. This whole thing is like unscrambling an egg. So I I can try to do that. But the problem is, however, God doesn't forget history, nor does he fail to enact justice according to his sovereign will. So this means that we need to be we need to be vigilant in our acknowledgement of the sin and just as vigilant in seeing to it that it's dealt with. Whether that's a sin of today where we need the magistrate to enact justice according to God's word or whether it's seeking reconciliation for the sins of our past. We have to pursue it. We need to be vigilant about it. So on one level you can't repent for someone else's sins. You just can't do it. It's not, your, it's not your guilt to bear because your friend stole something. But on another level, you can, and and we might call this, I was thinking of something to call it, here's what I'm calling it, vicarious repentance. You might, you might confess the sin and strive towards righteousness and justice. That's why in our confession of sin, every single week when we gather as God's people, we do a prayer confession. And most, more often than not, I mean, sometimes we'll read you know, from the Bible, Psalm 51 or other passages of repentance or, or maybe some other prayers that were written by you know, saints through the ages. But most often than not, you'll hear us pray about our individual sins and the sins of our church and our nation because we have a category for that. So we, we can do the vicarious repentance all because we understand the covenant. These are the terms of the covenant. Now, humanism... This is what we've been attacking for eight weeks, right? Humanism itself believes that culture is genetics externalized. That's what humanism thinks. Everything that happens in culture, systems, a social order, you name it, all that is just simply genetics externalized. Think of, think of Darwin and, and his whole uh, survival of the fittest, right? Um, Trump got elected because he's rich and powerful and he had enough money. right? I mean, you could argue that, right? You could say that. But little old me, you know, I'm in Northern Virginia, and I'm not going to be president yet. But w- that's what we think. we think. Humanists think in terms of genetics, and everything is the way it is because of the gene pool. That's humanism. That's the lie of the serpent. See, providence by matter, we might call it, believes that genetic makeup, skin color, all those things determine the outcome of social standing. Some racists have said, and they continue to say, that a black person isn't fit for our culture because their position as a slave is what their genes produce. You had people say this. They still say it. The black man is just always going to be a slave. He's always going to be a victim because that's his genes. This is, this is sin. <laughs> as wickedness. But that's what humanism teaches. This is a lamentable sin worthy of our stern correction, but people do think this sort of thing. They think that, that whites are the superior race and that everybody must bow to this form of imperialism. Kinnists, modern-day kinism, believes that it's a sin to marry across the color line. This, too, is on the heresy scale. But the problem is very simple. See, Providence, Providence comes from the hand of God, not materialism. Do you, do you understand? Providence, how things are worked out in history comes from God, not your gene pool, not your genetic makeup, not survival of the fittest, sort of doggy-dog world, right? That's not the gospel. See, Christianity stands in sharp opposition to this thinking, which is connected to some of Marx's, Marx's ideas. We're different. Christians are different because religion, excuse me, culture is religion externalized. Culture happens because what you believe takes place in the real world. Your confession, your faith, your religious convictions work themselves out in how you view the world and what you do in the world. So we're different. So it's not dialectical materialism. It's not this, this, uh, you know, this weird concoction of, well, we're just man. We evolved, so we have to deal with it. See, this is a matter of our confession as believers in Christ. All humans are made in the image of God. And because of that, each man and woman possesses inherent dignity that's bestowed on them by God. God. So that's our confession. That's the truth of God's word. And those who would say that one race is more superior than another will face the sovereign God and be judged accordingly. See, when we understand these dynamics properly, we can begin to see things the way that God sees them we can see the beauty of all the nations of the earth and their worth and their value and their dignity and all the tribes of the earth, all men and women and children. And we, when we see things that way through God's lens, we can strive towards reconciliation. And the reality is regarding our nation, the sin of slavery is only the beginning. I'm not arguing for you to leave here and I'll well, feel guilty about slavery. I'm... We need to confess that sin, and probably more than once, and take the responsibility for undoing what it, the damage that it's done. But that's only beginning. What, what's happening now, a century later, is exactly what Dr. Perkins is talking about. I'll quote him again. Listen. Listen to him. He said, I also look around and see the legacy that slavery has left among black people, how it has damaged our sense of self-worth so severely and how other forms of bondage have risen up to take its place. Anyone with the retort to the suggestion of bearing covenantal responsibility for the sin of slavery, anyone who says, what am I supposed to just feel guilty, is a fool who does not know Christ. The damage done to African-Americans in our nation is incalculable. Slaves were bought, sold, traded, tortured, raped, beaten, burned, lynched, separated from their family, abused, molested, treated like dirt. And lest we forget, the Supreme Court said that they were not people, but property. For several hundred years, that's how they were treated. So the white man could what? Make a buck. And the church, by and large, justified it. It's good. We're evangelizing them. Keep them coming. Export them from Africa. Bring them here. We're, we're providing a better living for them. If you want to read the true accounts of some of the horrific stuff that took place, you've got to get McDermott's book. See, the beloved southern theologians like Dabney justified it. After slavery was abolished, the damage still lingered. The concept of the police was invented to do what? Chase down runaway slaves. Segregation laws and Jim Crow laws followed. Dr. Perkins shares some of his own stories. Growing up in Mississippi, um, the white cop who pulled him over and taunted him repeatedly, trying to get him to mouth off so he could yank him out of his car and arrest him. Humiliated in front of his family his own brother gunned down, and that was 30 or 40 years ago. See, today we have the same stuff go on through the vehicle of the drug war and other things. Driving while black is a thing when young men are targeted simply because, well, they are black. Someone like Eric Garner is choked to death on the streets of New York City on camera, and the police officer goes free. Philando Castile, Botham Jean, countless other cases. And where is the church? Ah, there they are in their walls preaching the gospel. And we wonder why there's racial tension in our nation. We wonder why the black sense of self-worth has been scarred and all but completely destroyed. Listen, the statist collectivism of white humanists who don't love Jesus has been allowed to run rampant and it has done nothing but declare war on our black brothers and sisters. The solution is not more statism. That's the problem. So where do we go from here? Well, we need to first acknowledge it and we need to ask God for, to forgive us for the sin of the chattel slavery system. We need, to, um, we need to ask God to use our brokenness over that to propel us into reconciliation into the world. We must also acknowledge that the systems in place right now are simply more humanist systems that do more injustice and does not help. We must also insist on God's law being the great equalizer, not man's law. The criminal justice system is broken because the humanists have taken over and the philosophy of the humanists will inherently mean that minorities and those who don't have the money or the means to fight it will be oppressed by it. Get pulled over for having a plant in a bag. You're arrested. They impound your car. $300, $400, $500 a day. And now you got to face court and pay those fines. Next thing you know, after a couple of weeks, you're thousands of dollars in debt to the state and you can't do anything. That's not justice. God hates it. So we want righteousness in the public square that only comes through the justice and righteousness of god and we also need to forge relationships with minorities not for tokenism not for tokenism not for the purpose of soothing our guilty conscience but because the vision of revelation 7 is our end game why not do it now Working with black churches, Chinese churches, you name it, will be a great step. And while more could be said, here's what I'm suggesting tonight. One thing we have to do is listen. Listen. Hear some stories. Read them. Weep over them. Be changed by them. Listen to our brothers and sisters and try to understand. And in our understanding, let's, let's move to action. And let it be said of Cross and Crown that we lived our lives in constant pursuit of God's justice. Let it be said of Cross and Crown Church that we loved others, especially when they just don't look like us at all. Let it be said of Cross and Crown Church that we pursued the kingdom of God with every single ounce of energy we could muster up and in so doing, labor alongside our brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is a gospel promise. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask and pray that justice would roll down like an early spring rainfall on our nation. We desire to see all tribes, tongues, and languages worship and adore your Son, our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that as a nation we have sinned egregiously against you. We have treated our neighbor as less than human instead of serving him or her with love. We continue to legislate injustice and immorality, and because of our humanist ventures, we have oppressed many, many people. Father, please forgive us. Lord, we ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to love and serve our neighbor as ourself, that we would be marked by your gospel in tangible ways as we seek to live for your glory. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.